Welcome to Conversations Live. For more than a decade, we've brought you the best in books, entertainment, celebrity interviews, and current events. When the movers and shakers of the world have something to say to you, they say it to us first. Here's your host, Cyrus Webb. Welcome back, everyone, to Conversations Live. I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Glad you all could join us once again. But for our radio audience here in Mississippi at WYAD 94.1 FM and WYADonline.com, we're glad that you all could be with us. Also, tuning in to our online affiliates around the world, we're glad that you all could be with us as well. We all have heard about getting one's 15 minutes of fame. And these days, especially with social media, people are trying to become famous, maybe for no other reason than to be famous. But one individual that definitely knows what it's like to be able to experience fame, but also all that comes with it is our next guest today. We're really excited to welcome Hollywood manager and publicist Ramon Hervey II. We're going to talk to him about his brand new book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes, but also what the reflection has been like for him to be able to look at the people he's worked with, the impact he's had on them and them on him, and what you guys should know about fame and how fame really does play into every part of our lives in many aspects. If you're just now finding out about the book, we'll let you know how to get your own copy of it. Mr. Hervey, thank you so much for the time today. really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Cyrus. It's a pleasure to be a guest on your show, and uh, uh, it's, it's nice to uh, have the support. Thank you. Well, look, we appreciate it. When our mutual friend, Makita Smith, told me about the book, you know, I was very excited about this. And I have to say I was really surprised by it as well, Mr. Hervey, because I think for a lot of people, and and I know I felt this in reading the book, and I'm curious if you've heard this from other people, that this book to me is about, okay, if you want – it kind of reminds me of that line from the show Fame, that if you want it, it's going to cost you. You really do show the work that's involved in having a successful career. What was that like for you to kind of look at your career and and the impact you've been able to have on the industry? Um, You know, I'm not at the point where I'm really reexamining my legacy or – that, you know, when uh, when I was coming up, I just wanted to try to be the best that I could be. I think the book for me is really about that. You know, I have uh, in the back of the book, uh, as, you, as I'm sure since you read it, um, I had some tenets of fame, about fame, the little lessons uh, that I've learned through my four decades of being in the business. And one of them is, you know, don't obsess about fame obsess about being your best and that was really you know the way that i approach the business and just um uh, building trust with my clients and um being a sponge of the industry and studying uh you know how people do become famous and i believe that fame is not it's an accolade it's not the destiny it's not a destination so what I've always encouraged my clients is let's figure out how to get you to be successful. And if you're successful, and I believe this is not just uh, in the entertainment business, but it's in paramount in the entertainment business, that you achieve some level of success. Once you get that success, then that's when the clock starts ticking about what your 15 minutes can amount to. And my my whole philosophy is you, you earn it, and that's why it's in the title. It's not – you know, if there was a recipe or some potion or some life uh, coaching, you know, that for three weeks, if you do this program, you're going to be famous, uh, that's what I would be selling, but that doesn't exist. And the other thing about fame is the path for each and every one of my clients was different. So there is no one path, and part of the my reflection in the book is showing people what 
each of these clients that I became close with and confident with what my what my challenges were before, you know, uh, when I started with them, how I affected them, and just what level of fame they were at when. Um, and they're they're all different. They all had a different story, and I had had different challenges with each of them. And in looking at those challenges and their successes and their journey, Mr. Hervey, did you find that, that that you took lessons from each one of them along the way? Because it seems like that also was a big part of this, too, what you learned from not only what they were able to do, but also how they reacted to it. Yeah, I, I definitely learned a lot of lessons from working with different, you know, different clients because I got to work with some of the very best talents in, in the business. So, you know, people like Richard Pryor, Bette Midler, I managed Little Richard, you know, who was, you know, some people argue he was the founder of rock and roll. You know, Richard Pryor um, may be the best comic to ever live. You know, Bette Midler is uh, multifaceted in every uh, genre of the entertainment industry. So she gave me an opportunity to learn, you know, film, television, concert touring, music. Um, she wrote two books while I was uh involved with her so you know the exposure that you get to fame is what gives you the skill set to learn how to deal with it um and each of these um clients that i had even has the longest running uh had the longest running tv show tv show in the history of the industry over 35 years you know all of these people um babyface who's one of the most uh you know uh top contemporary music uh, songwriter producers, you know, in the last 50 years. You know, all these people taught me, you know, different skills that I needed to deal with their fame and, and uh, try to help them, again, reach success. And and you're quite honest, actually, Mr. Hervey. In the, I mean, this is our first um, interaction with one another, but I think anyone who reads The Fame Game gets an idea of your personality, of your work ethic, your skill set, and probably one of the most contentious situations that you outline in the book, and, and again, talking about what can be the downside of fame, was with Rick James. What was that like for you to reflect on? I know you said in the beginning you're, you're not at a place where you're kind of thinking about legacy. But what was it like for you to kind of think about those type of relationships and the lessons you learn from those interactions. Well, Rick, Rick was uh, one of the most talented um, artists I've ever worked with, but he was also very self-destructive. And so you try to find, you know, I think the key when you're a manager or publicist, your goal is to uh, accentuate the strengths of your clients and, you know, prevent the weaknesses from, from, from the spotlight being on their weaknesses, but you need to have a partnership with that client in order to do that. And if they're constantly showing their weaknesses, then it becomes, it circumvents everything you're trying to do to focus on their strengths. And Rick was one of those people that, you know, he got in his own way. He was, you know, many, many times where um, it was tough to bail him out. One of the, one of the biggest things that, that we tried to do, what I tried to do with him was to um, call attention to MTV uh, not playing um, black videos by successful black artists. You know, not only Rick had it, you know, uh, I worked with him on Street Songs, which is his biggest album of his career. 
two of his biggest songs, Give It To Me Baby and Super Freak, were on those records, was on that album. And, you know, he was, you know, Prince was out then, Michael Jackson was out then. There was a lot of big um, black superstars, and none of them could get played on, on MTV. And so we came, I came up with an idea for Rick to talk about to get MTV to talk about their position, not to attack them, but just to talk about it so we could create a dialogue and put them on public notice. You tell us why you don't play black, uh, black videos. Um, but instead, he, he took the opposite, and when he was on a panel at the Billboard Music Awards, uh, Billboard Conference, used to be a Billboard Conference, and one of the executives at MTV was there, and uh, he attacked her, and they took a strong stance, and he ended up, you know, he was already not being played, but then they pretty much banned him. And uh, so, uh, so those are things that, you know, you, you try to think outside the box. You try to be creative. You put a person in a position where they can become an ambassador for something. But if they don't seize that moment, then, you know, it doesn't work. It can backfire. And in that case, it did backfire. He did eventually get on MTV through an album that he did with Eddie Murphy. And he was in a video. And that was the first time that he appeared uh, but that was several years later. So it didn't really help him in his own solo career, but he eventually got on. And eventually it did trigger more talk and dialogue about the issue. And then Michael Jackson actually was the one that, who, you know, really revolutionized MTV as a black artist and, and, and changed their programming. Such a great point, and again, a great reflection there. I want to say for those who are just tuning in, is on the radio side or online, you're listening to Conversations Live. We're excited to welcome Mr. Ramon Herbie II to our program today. He's not only a noted Hollywood manager and publicist, but the author of the new book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Another uh, account that really stands out to me, Mr. Herbie, was your engagement and interactions with the Bee Gees and what you learned, the lessons there. I want to actually read this because I think this is a great reminder for our audience as they're learning about this book, but also thinking about themselves and what they want. For those who have the hardcover, it's on page 115. And this is what you wrote about the Bee Gees and what happened to them and timing, uh, Mr. Hervey. The Bee Gees' talents as songwriters and artists weren't in decline. They were victims of an unfortunate and unprecedented shift in the value of the music genre that made them famous. It forced them out. Having an inside view of their rise and fall forever influenced my perception of fame and how to treat it. Fame is a joint venture between the celebrity and the public. And when the public decides you aren't relevant anymore, it's an ominous task to convince them otherwise. I think that is such a powerful thing, especially in 2022. But what was that like for you to think about when it comes to the Bee Gees and what happened in their career? Well, at the time, you know, I was a very, I was a fledgling uh, publicist. That that was one of my first big assignments because I was black. I was working at a uh, one of the biggest uh, PR companies in the business at the time. In fact, they were the first company, Rogers and Cowan, to be an independent, uh, uh, to build an independent public relations company because the studios used to. Um, control all the PR, they controlled agencies. There were no agencies, there were no publicists early on in the entertainment business. And the movie stars were completely, they were employees of the studios and they were one of the first people to start a company where these people could actually hire their own publicists instead of only working under the, the auspices of the studio. 
Um, but I think with, with the BG, so I was assigned a crisis because their crisis came from them being accused of stealing black music and um, taking money out of the, uh, out of the hands of black artists. Um, and um, there was a cover on Jet Magazine of them and the OJs, who was one of the bigger artists at the time. But they were accused, basically, and they, they, they didn't like that idea. But at the same time, they were purposely trying to do a blend of urban music and pop music, which at, in those years, this was in the mid-'80s, that was called disco music. And so they weren't the first one to do it. You know, Donna Summer, there were other people that were successful in, in disco music. Um, but it's the first genre of music in my lifetime where the industry said we don't want to. Um, they participated in the downfall of it. And they, you know, they, they turned their, uh, their backs on it. And all those artists that, who became popular uh, were in the same position as the Bee Gees. And the Bee Gees, um, they they just reached the highest peak uh, during that time with the success of the movie. Um, so, you know, every, again, every, that was a crisis situation. And when you have a crisis situation, you have to, you know, to me, the first thing that you do is you, you have to be honest because if you're not uh, one lie leads to another lie. And so the whole idea was to just try to do something honest that would put put them in a different position. And in the book, I explained what that was. And one of the things that I thought, rather than try to get in a, in a rebuttal with what Jack acclaimed, you know, and that was not supported by us as their publicist. Jet did this article totally on their own. They didn't talk to anybody. They just took this opinion. Um, and so what we, what I tried to do was come up with a plan, a plan that would put them in a better, shed a better light on them in terms of, Black Culture Universal, and I tried to hook them up with Coretta Scott King um, to do something for the Martin Luther King uh, Center for Social Change, which she was investing in and building in after her husband had died. And I thought it would be really great to have a number one, you know, pop stars in the world work with the leading female civil rights leader at that time and to create a partnership to bring light on the on, and using music as a, you know, a universal language as opposed to just, okay, it's black or it's white. Right, right, and and it really says so much. Even as you, I mean, talk about early on in the book, Missouri, about the public dictates fame, right? I mean, it really does become about the public, and I think that really shows itself in what in the portion of the book that I read, too. And and I think uh, too, as as we we close here, the other thing I wanted to mention that I thought must have been something humbling for you but also reflective of your own work ethic is the praise that you got from these individuals um, that are, are, are seen as so iconic themselves. You talk about that one uh, encounter with, with, with Quincy Jones and, and him letting you know and you come into the realization of it wasn't just the work, it was you. Um, that that really impressed him, and then uh, even in, in another situation, you talk about an individual saying that you know he believed that that God put you all together. What was that like for you to kind of reflect on because of your work ethic, because of what you were devoted to, the way that other people saw you and what you were able to deliver? Um, I just um, I'm pretty much a down to earth person, and so to me, it was it was a nice pat on the back. I mean, I'm always about doing my best and I, I like to win. I mean, really I'm in it to win. 
Um, right. With every client, if I can move their career forward, um, if I can get them an extra couple of minutes of fame, uh, more success, I feel good about myself as a person. Um, and, um, you know, I listen. I think that one of the things is just to be a good listener and to really uh, take the time to examine your, your clients and, and find out what it is that they really want and to then, again, be honest and, and say, well, look, here's a strategy and a plan that I think we can do together as a partnership. And when you do that and you're a listener, then they gain more trust in you. They believe that they can, you know, because the better you know them, the, the better, you, the more creative you can be. And to me, to get into their heads and to understand who they are, what they really want to do, and then come up for a plan that will allow them to, you know, it's like dream, dream of being a dream facilitator. And that's what I you know, so whenever you, you know, when you accomplish your goals, it's, you know, in any business, I think it's it's gratifying and satisfying to see people that you care about win, you know, and uh, yeah. and and, and as, a, as an output of that, you win as well. So that's, uh, I'm blessed that I had some really great talents to, to shine, to help, you know, bring light to, to what I'm, what my skills are. I focus a lot on the musical examples, Mr. Hervey, in this book, but there's so many other people that you have worked with. Of course, everyone knows Vanessa Williams, and I mean, of course, outside of her career as a you know recording artist and actress. I mean, you know what she's been able to achieve in her life. You talk about that in the book as well. And, and so, I wanted to ask you this: and when you were writing the Fame Game, who did you have in mind for the audience? Uh, a cross-section of, of audience. To me, the book is a hybrid. I, I tried to combine my story um, with my my philosophy on fame, particularly as it relates to social media, because social media, you know, everybody, I, I, I like social media and the fact it's giving everyone a chance to have a voice and to be an entrepreneur, but only 1% of the people who are on social media really reach any real big success, and most of those people are people who are already famous. They're the ones who are getting the more benefit from it than any other uh, people, even the people that are self-starters, you know, who are quote-unquote social, they've uh, attained social media fame. But social media has only been around for 12 years compared to, you know, um, newspapers, radio, and television, which have been around for, for uh, centuries, you know. Um, so I try to, you know, cast a light on the fact that, you know, you can um, just – Again, it's about success, and it's not about fame, and that's what those pe- a lot of people, I think, have a misnomer about social media, that right. that you could have a little bit of fame but not ever reach success, and it can be very fleeting. And so that's, you know, I tell that story. I try to give the arc of, of, of um, how fame and our attitudes towards fame has changed since I first started in the business, and then... I used, you know, eyewitness uh, accounts, as you've referred to many times, of here are some examples of how fame worked for some people that you guys really you know about that I had a very, you know, an inside, you know, a seat with, and I just try to take people on that seat like a passenger with me. Here, let me take you a ride through what I've experienced, and maybe you can take it. There's some takeaways from that in terms of how you approach fame because fame, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a beginner or even if you're, I found in my experience, there were people that were famous that had a hard time dealing with fame. So young kids have a hard time. They have no clue. 
that it can be it can be an arbitrage around your neck at any time, whether you're 16 or 18 and just starting out, or you could be in your 50s and feel you're declining and wondering, what am I going to do when I no longer am famous? And I've dealt with all aspects of it, from starting young and then people that are, you know, feel like they're on their last leg, their last breath, and they're gasping to, how do I stay relevant? And that's, I've played... Played, uh, I've had input in all those phases of things. And that's what makes this book one that I think the readers will definitely enjoy. I mean, for one, for the stories, but also for the lessons, some of those we pointed out here. Again, everyone, Ramon Hervey II has been our guest. The book is The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. It's available through our friends at Amazon.com or through your favorite local bookstore. If they don't have it, I know they'd be more than happy to order it for you. It's, it's published by our friends at Amistad. And, Mr. Hervey, how can our audience stay connected with you? Well, um, they can stay connected with me uh, through my website, www.herveyandcompany.com. Um, there's a, I put the, you know, there's stuff on there about the book. If you, you know, if you want to get the, some highlights and just see the breast, the, you know, the, my background. Um, I'm a, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, and uh, I post all the time. LinkedIn, so any of those social media platforms. Um, I'm a slave to that as, as well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, look, like the rest of us for sure. Mr. Herbie, this has been a real honor. Thank you so much for the time. Congratulations again on the book, and looking forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and, uh, and best of luck to you as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. And we thank your audience for tuning in to another great segment of Conversations Live. If you all did come in late and you missed part of this conversation, don't worry. Thanks to our online friends. You all can catch the replay after we go off the air. The link is already published throughout our social media. You all can be able to find it there. For those joining us on WYAD, you'll find the podcast link on our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm your host, Cyrus Webb. Sing as always, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your world. Thank you all for choosing Conversations Live. And it's going to make today amazing. Take care.